0: Hello everyone, welcome to the Teamcast. I'm Coleman Ruiz, Director of Performance at the Mission Critical Team Institute, and the Teamcast is a show where my colleagues, Dr. Preston Klein, Claire Murphy, Harry Moffitt, and myself, along with our guest, discuss all things mission critical teams. Mission critical teams are teams of four to twelve people who are indigenously trained and educated, and who solve rapidly emerging complex adaptive problem sets. MCTs work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less, where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. Regardless of whether you're on a mission-critical team or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the Teamcast.
1: G'day, welcome back to the Teamcast. My name's Harry Moffat. I'm a director at the Mission Critical Team Institute. Today we're going to be talking about cognitive or mental tools that are used in performance. They're tools that we use to train, develop, prepare, maintain, recover or even rehabilitate our minds or our psychological selves. Psychology is a very broad term. It encapsulates perception, consciousness, emotions and feelings, how we might feel our way through the world and thinking kind of generally about ourselves, our physical and even social selves. It's mostly founded in our biology. So some of the principles that we can apply to cognitive and mental tools Training can be analogous to physical training, and we'll do that a bit through our conversation today. Again, you know, it's much more complex than this simple explanation, but we'll unpack a little bit of that later. So what are some of the cognitive tools we can use? Well, depending on who you talk to, there's a laundry list out there. We professionally trained psychologists will lean into psychotherapy and talk therapy and use terms and techniques such as reframing, visualisation, rehearsal, anticipation, Role play, self-talk, goal setting and problem solving tools, specific tools, reflection routines and and even chunking practices or, or compartmentalization. They're all terms I'm sure many of you have heard before. But there's also tools within the tools, and they might include breathing, humour, novelty, music, uh, nature, immersion, contemplation, or philosophy. I, I love personally love pacing as a way to reflect and, and reframe issues. But also talk about, I suppose, more macro subject matter as well in terms of purpose, or leadership, or environment, and even the culture of a place, whatever whatever that might be. And of course, there are a myriad of self-helpers out there into including books and podcasts, those who borrow from the research, mostly for marketing purposes. But this is a good point to caution around the use of mental tools and cognitive training or approaches. There's quite a difference in reading the research and regurgitating it and actually applying the techniques. And the key here is that the psychologists who are trained are trained to diagnose and deliver the right tool to the right person for the desired outcome that they want and they understand the underlying principles behind why they work or not. And importantly, they also understand the traps. And I think it's fair to say that when we're delving into the mental or cognitive space of an individual, the downside can be quite devastating if you get it wrong. One simple example is superstitions we see in sports people during preparation or their routines, and that can quickly spiral into beyond self-doubt into mental health issues. So fair warning, be careful about backyard psychology and how we apply these things and always refer yourself to a trained professional. And today's MCTI guest is one such trained professional. Paddy Steinfurt is not only a psychologist in the performance space, but he's also lived it. He's a former elite Australian rules footballer. He played for the Richmond Football Club Uh, back in the day, and now Paddy is a psychologist and cognitive coach of Note, of Global Note. He's worked with the Philadelphia Eagles, the Blue Jays, 76ers, Red Sox. He's worked at the University of Pennsylvania and Texas Tech, and he was recently appointed the Director of Performance at Football Australia. I should also note he's worked with some exceptional individuals as well, Patrick Mahomes, Ben Simmons, and Vladimir Guerrero, Just three of those, and I'm sure anyone who knows their US uh, sports, those names will well and truly resonate. You can actually check out Paddy's own podcast, Uh, it's called Toughness. But today, we are super stoked to have him on the team cast and joining me to talk about all things cognitive coaching. Patty, it's great to have you back in Australia, mate, and available to come on the team cast. We've been um, threatening to do this for a while now. You just come from a COVID test, mate. What's uh, What was that like? Were you all clear?
2: Yeah, well, we don't get the result immediately, but, I, you know, this guy was more
1: thorough than most.
2: You, you start to, when I have them. probably on average, I get them every second day or every third day these days. So you start to get a, a feel for the nuance of the testers, and this guy was very thorough. Got my brain scratched a little bit, so hopefully... Uh, there's nothing left to the imagination.
1: So, mate, what I want to do is I want to pick through everything you've done, you know, and none less than um, uh, the US experience you've had with some of those teams. But I, I wonder if you can just kind of give us a bit of a background, where it all started for you and, and the journey, try and fit it into a background to where you find yourself now. The journey
2: in terms of all the sports team stuff probably started when, as a kid growing up in Melbourne, where footy was the be-all and end-all. It's kind of like the equivalent of uh, football in Texas where, like, if you want to grow up and be an athlete, that's the only choice you have or it's the main one, right? So that was a dream of mine as a teenager. I do remember, I know that a lot of the uh, audience for your show is is either military, ex-military or first responders. I used to look in awe in my teen years, particularly my grandfather was in the military and I used to watch some documentaries and imagine myself being a soldier. Being a football player ended up being a little more of a lucrative career, so I went down that pathway. (laughs) But I used to always try and, and this is, you know, without trying to sound blasphemous because it's nothing like it, but trying to mentally prepare myself for games of football as if it was a war and I was going to throw my body in and potentially hurt myself and take risks that otherwise sane people shouldn't take, not to the degree of military operators, but it was, I think, an element of my psyche that came from my dad's side. In line with that, there was obviously if I was going to take some of those risks on the field, I had to kind of mentally steel myself beforehand and work on getting myself in the zone, which I was lucky enough at the age of 16 or 17, I reckon it was, as before I'd been drafted, pre-season camp for one of the uh, rep teams of the area. And I was just coming up. I hadn't really done anything to that point that would really put me on the radar. And then it's in this pre-season camp, we had a psychologist come in and we did a couple of things and lo and behold, I went out and played like the two best games of my life for the next two weeks. And I was like, oh, maybe it's something to do with this stuff. So I dove in and dove right in and, and it became a core part of my preparation pretty much my entire time as an athlete, probably to the, to the point where it was actually detrimental. I was like relying on it too much, almost superstitious. Yeah. But it definitely was a core part of my advantage as, a, as an athlete. I'm six six, but I'm not probably the fastest guy getting around. And I wasn't the most built guy ever either. It was a lot to do with anticipation, calculated risks.
1: What position Um, were you
2: playing? I was playing, for for those who know Aussie rules or footy, I was playing in the ruck. So there's a lot of, basically, to describe it to, like with the soccer team that I'm working with right now, I describe it as we run as much as you guys, but we wrestle every 30 seconds. Yeah. (laughs) And, And it's full contact. You can get hit from any direction. So... Like the physical demands were pretty intense and particularly in that position. You know, I, I naturally was drawn to the psychology side of things. I was doing physiotherapy as a career at that point. of was studying it, but uh, a combination of having surgery every year of my playing career, so I think it was eight or maybe eight in nine years, I couldn't actually do a full week of work as a physio by the time I was finished. My shoulders would get sore after three reconstructions, so I started looking at what else there might be, went into uh, – Coaching or or leadership consulting, I guess it was, but it was with elite sports teams as a drop-in, you know, drop-in, out, hit-and-run kind of coach, and that was a lot on um, org psych, slowly building cultural change programs that are owned by the operators as opposed to top-down coach command and control stuff, and that was my first taste of coaching, which led me back. That was in New Zealand for a couple of years, led me back to Australia to go into the AFL as a coach, and as luck would have it, while I was coaching. It wasn't lucky at the time, didn't feel lucky. But we had uh, a couple of months after I joined that team, my first job as a as a development coach, the team I was with was fined for breaching the salary cap the previous couple of years. We, we got slugged a penalty of two draft picks for each of the next two years. So instead of my job being turning a first-round pick and just making him be a first-round pick, my job was to take a third-round pick and make him the, the equivalent of a first-round pick and most of the competitive advantages that people have traditionally mined like moneyball or sports science were kind of done pretty well by most of the teams psychology to me partly because of my playing career and also just because of a hunch looked like an area that really wasn't done properly or systematically and if we did it well we could get an advantage and maybe help these kids be better than what everyone else projected they would be and so i started every off season i'd go to america to visit with some teams and meet with some psychologists and just Learn That was off my own bat. I'd, I'd pay for it and disappear for a couple of months. Right. And then uh, as, as the years went on with the football job, I, I was getting promoted and I uh, also got an offer from a university where I was actually flying. So Angela Duckworth was one of my favourite researchers who I would read a lot of. She's the author of a book called Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance, I think is the subtitle, but pretty easy to find. Angela is a, is a gun and I had read about her research in a couple of other books, didn't really connect it, until I was flying to go visit the Philadelphia Eagles, ironically, from Australia. And over the Pacific, I read about this woman's name came up again for the third time. I was caught by it, and I was like, oh, and it's at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, which at that time I was like, Pennsylvania sounds like somewhere near Transylvania or like it's <laughs> it's in Eastern Europe, so no chance of going there. And I happened to be going to Philly. So I sent an email, got connected to her and the university. And then about a month later, they suggested I join a master's course. I was busy employed in Australia at the time, but I ended up putting it in on a whim. And then lucky I did because the coach I was under got fired. I got a payout and I went and studied in America. And then since then, you just described everything before in the intro, all, all the things that happened since then that were really accidental but kind of the culmination of a lifetime of being either at the coalface or trying to work out some of those problems.
1: But it's great how you had that practitioner experience and then uh, on top of that, take the risks. You know, you kind of knew what you were after and then uh, it sounds risky. I guess at the time it was all exciting and uh, you probably didn't think much of it. But I want to come back to the the teams that you've been working with because I think there's some great insights to be taken out of that. But one thing I just want to you just mentioned a minute ago was when, when the mental tools and, and cognitive skills that we use that we that we all have inherently, but we just need how just like we have arms, but then might not might not be strong, or our hand-eye coordination needs development. You mentioned superstition. It's very rarely um, talked about. We've got a I've got a paper we're writing for MCTI at the moment. We touch a bit on that because I, I picked up on it from cricket mental routines and and all those types of things and they become superstitions and cricket's one of those Mm -hmm. things i know it is in other club rooms as well but cricket's one of those things where people won't even leave the seat for a whole session because they think somehow someone's going to get out do you cover superstition and is there you know is there a point in your mind that where the conversation starts to turn when you're working with athletes
2: it'll come up if someone uses the word superstition but often it's just a matter of it's an avoidance behavior that helps remove the discomfort so whether it's i'm going to visualize for 20 minutes like there's a very little evidence to suggest visualization helps you in a complex task and so you're doing that because you think it helps but the only reason you think it helps is because there's either a false correlation or because you feel better afterwards and because you, and you associate feeling good with executing good and that's not the case because most people who are experts can usually think of a time when I felt shit but I still performed well or I felt well, I was distracted but then when I focused on what I was doing, I got it done or I felt uncomfortable and I still crushed the speech or the presentation or the podcast. And so the ability, like people who, who often use superstitions or, you know, habitual routines are usually doing so as a way to handle their emotional regulation rather than, to improve their attention on what's critical in the moment. Yeah. And that's that's usually where it comes up. And I I was, I won't say a victim because that sounds a bit too strong, but the psychology I was presented early on was very much based in a cognitive behavioral therapy mold, where it's your thoughts create your feelings, which create your angle I can't remember exactly which way it goes, but basically that we can control our thoughts, which can control our feelings, which then allow us to perform well or do well. If we focus on feeling good, then we can do the rest. Whereas there's a alternate approach to psychology, which I stumbled on by working with elite performers. I didn't really crack that myself as a career, as an athlete in my career. But working with some of the world's best, it, it struck me how often they would be like, I'd, I'd be talking about that thought, feeling, action cascade. And they're like, nah, no, no, it's no, that's not how I do it. I do it the other way. I just like it's all about action and it doesn't you know the, the game doesn't give a shit how i feel yeah. and that's and that started me down the path of this process called acceptance commitment therapy which is much more applicable to high pressure high stakes performance and you're and that's really more about you like if i feel uncomfortable i don't need a superstition to get rid of it i just need a plan and a committed plan so I don't have to think while I'm in the moment.
1: I remember you saying, you know, it's 80 games a year and you might have three in this, so you might be away for months at a time. It was hard to maintain relationships. So just give, talk us through some of the other takeaways. You worked in Philadelphia, Toronto, Boston, down in Texas for a period, and and the travel that goes with that with elite sport in the US. You know, what, what were your reflections?
2: Yeah, I think uh, reflecting on it now... From a practitioner point of view, it was great because, like, working in baseball is one of the quickest ways to get good or get out. Like, you realize I'm just not going to do this; so it doesn't fire me up enough to continue to push through that. Or you get reps every day. You know, it's actually 160 games in 180 days is one baseball regular season, let alone playoffs, yeah. let alone the six weeks of preseason before that. So, there and that's an everyday sport. So for for more than six months there's exposure to, you know, a performance environment or as you guys would call it, a, an immersion event. As a yeah. psychologist or a coach, an immersion event is sitting in a locker room with the player or being on the field with them while they're in a state that needs either rectifying or coming back to the plan they committed. And uh, and so as a practitioner, that's my first reflection. Once I've come up from here, I'm like, oh, that was actually good for me. It took me a few years to get my head around that. Though. Yeah. Because I think when we met, I was right in the midst of it. And I was not enjoying the fact that I was on the road all the time. And and I, that was one of the big questions I had for you, like how do we handle deployment? Because that's effectively and particularly now when I left Australia just 10 days ago now, a bit over 10 days, I left full well knowing I'm not back until Christmas, uh, which is more than three months. And in some of that time I will have like a couple of down days here or there, but most of it's going to be in hotel bubbles, getting my nose scraped by a not-so-gentle PCR tester. And so while it's not the same as being on deployment in the military, there's still parallels I think we discussed when I brought that topic up. Yeah, definitely. And the biggest, I guess a couple of them is the chronic nature of distress that builds up, and I think you guys refer to it as residue, which I think is a great great way of describing it. It doesn't feel like much until you've been doing it for three months and then you're just like, why am I so jaded or just can't be bothered with, and normally I'd attack this gym session today, I just can't be bothered or people would report that they are happy to do a half-assed job because maybe it means they can go home for a couple of days. And, it, and it's really unusual with these high performers to hear them describe their experience like that, and they, they're almost ashamed of it. But it's in some ways a natural physiological consequence of having that consistent level of cortisol in your body and the slow burn of wearing down neurologically and in some cases physically so the biggest things that have that i've gotten much better at is consistent and this is for myself but also anyone i'm working with who's in the situation is again acceptance accepting that that's part if you want to do this thing this is part of the cost and right now we had to have many talks around this COVID journey we're about to we're on for three months a lot of the staff are away for three months like myself and it's, a, it's really about accepting that, like, all right, if you want to go to the World Cup, this is the cost. The cost is a little higher this year than normal years. But if that's going to be the cost, then what do we got to do to make sure we maintain our energy so that when we're in our immersion events, we're not impacting the other guys who are getting ready for theirs, which a lot of people watch. Ours happens behind the scenes, but it's still potentially just as important. And so my tricks that I'm still working out is making sure I exercise every day or do something. like. Get up, get some sunlight. There's some great tips from the Huberman Lab podcast, which I recommend people getting on.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, And Andrew Huberman, he did a great podcast on the MCTI. I think it was um, podcast number three. Where it was actually a, a um, transformative podcast for me. It goes for two hours, so it goes for a while. You picked up about the chronic nature of whether it's military deployments or going, spending three months on the road with a, with a football team, and there are plenty of parallels. I'm, I like to remind people, non-military people, who go, oh, what, you know, what's the secret well the secret is that for 99% of it you sit around doing stuff all you know it, it's a pretty banal existence in the military when you're on high cycle in special operations it's a different thing you might have periods you know of uh, increased uh, functionality, but I, I like the concept of allostatic load. It kind of explains a lot, and you know anyone listening can uh, just Wikipedia allostatic load and get it, get the concept, and then overlay onto that what uh, Andrew Huberman talks about. I think uh, is really beneficial, and it's fast becoming non-optional, and. An obligation of leaders and coaches to know this stuff you know i, I remember can, you, when you, can i put my hand up as a as a as a rookie on that front and say i don't know I, I probably have heard
2: it but right now you say allostatic load and i'm like please tell me what that is
1: well you know it it's just the it's the nerds label for for chronic stress long duration gotcha. stress you know but it actually that it explains a, a bit you know and I kind of feel like when I when I played football, nothing at the level that you did. But when I was playing up, 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 playing junior footy, the coach. At Rockingham Junior Footy Club you'd, you'd have a, a, a hammy tear or a strain and you knew something was wrong and he'd tell you to run it out like seriously he wouldn't it wouldn't be a joke or anything He'd say, Rah, run 10 laps you know and so there you were running with a hamstring tear that's both the worst things you could possibly ever do and so I feel, I feel like we're at the same stage with mental skills and cognitive skills we're kind of only just getting over the run it out and you know mentality, or and and coaches are just starting to come to terms with it in the US. Do they have is there resistance still, or is it starting to relent? And what about the coaches' role in that as well?
2: It's definitely becoming more of a thing. Like you look at Naomi Osaka with her pulling out of I think it was the French or the US Open, uh, maybe sorry Wimbledon, and what Simone Biles did at the Olympics, where she just stopped mid-event because she had you know, and people put that. And here's the here's the tricky bit. Naomi's was definitely a mental health issue. She, she has a recognised anxiety disorder. And while some of the society is like, hey, let's you know, back off her. She's dealing with stuff and we should be, it's 2021, we should allow people to take days off work if they're having mental illness. There was a good portion of the crowd who were like, nah, she's being petulant. This is why you get paid twenty million dollars." Blah blah blah, and and it's and so whilst there is more acceptance, it's still not a at a level of broad acceptance where, I mean, concussion has come a little further, but there are still people who think that if with a concussion, you should just push through as well, which is obviously not ideal. Whereas with Simone Biles, who got what they call twisties in gymnastics, or they caught getting twisted in diving, I actually had. Two Olympic divers on my podcast a few weeks ago, and they talked about the same phenomena. It's actually a physiological issue, so it's not a mental health. I, I'm nervous; I can't do this. The nerves are well founded because you've lost your ability to locate yourself in space, Yeah. and right. you might break your neck. Yeah. That's a pretty important thing that you're going to take care of, right? So, her getting nervous wasn't her having an anxiety attack. That was legitimate nerves because I might hurt myself. Which you and I, and probably every listener would have if we tried to do even half of what she does. She does things that no other human has done before. And so if if either of us were asked to do it, we would get very, very nervous and we'd probably say, nah, not, not today. But she, we just expect her to be a superhuman. And so on both instances, there are a, a group of people who are like, you know, good on your girl, and you should be looking after your mental health and we should be uh, looking after the athletes. And then there's still a crowd who expect them to be superhuman. And think that you know these people are here for our edification and entertainment. And so, if you're feeling a little scared, well, suck it up, pal. And I think that's better than when I played, where there, you absolutely wouldn't talk about any of this. And hopefully, in 20 years, it's moved a little more, well, more sooner than 20 years. But it's moved a little more towards the, you know, a suggestion I put forward is that the ability to pull out of an event, to talk to your coach, to actually be mentally injured. Is the same as a physical injury, where there is allowances in the—I don't know in the Australian system, but in the American system, in the Disabilities at Work Act, there is an allowance for mental health time off, as long as it's assessed by a psychiatrist and it's, you know, a legit disorder, and then you're allowed to have work from home environments or anything like that. The equivalent can be done in sport. We just need to actually start treating it. Why? And that's why I like the Huberman podcast—is a lot of what we feel and think and what we consider our mind this you know where is our mind in our body what's well, the whole thing we feel stuff we have hormone levels that make us feel a certain way and that when we can start to relate like when i feel significantly depressed or when someone has a panic attack that's a physiological event it's not just something in their mind And when we can start to get that into the normal conversation then we can potentially treat it like that person's not
1: crazy they've just got an injury and again they come back to that human as, as an entry point, when I talk about leadership and we do leadership workshops, we, we go into human performance. I think, again, it's less uh, an option anymore for leaders to understand this stuff because it has implications for how you make people feel, the environment that you set and 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 develop around people, the attitude you bring to it, you know, the old uh, suck it up and survive has has a place absolutely when there's um, you know five minutes left and scores are level as we saw the other night there is there's no room really to start thinking uh, who's who's okay and who's not so just get out there and get on with it and that happens everywhere but I think in terms of how we prepare people that conversation is less and less an option and, and more an obligation for leaders. So you've worked with some pretty high-level athletes and mate, what I'd like to do is just just pick your brains a bit on any manner of of, of a laundry list. Where do, where does the discussion start for you? Uh,
2: usually it starts where the performer wants it to start. It's it's very, some of them will say I want to set goals most of the time by the, by the time they're at the level that a lot of the performers I work with are at, they're already either pretty good at setting goals or they're one of those types of people who doesn't set goals and they just go and do things. I would talk about it as pre-event, in-event and post-event skill sets, I guess, or toolboxes. And more and more, my work tends to focus on the in-event elements, which are really about, like if you talk your question, I think a part of it was, you know, what is performance or what is cognitive performance? And a lot of the times I'll talk to, I'll either present it to a group as a question and it's this question, how would you like for all of your talent and your hard work to be able to come out when you need it most on a big stage without your thoughts or your feelings getting in the way? In fact, we might even use those thoughts and feelings to make you even sharper. And usually, you know, I think most people as they're hearing that, they're like, oh yeah, sounds pretty good, I love that. And it's either that, that way framed or if you want a simple definition it's being able to have your attention on the right thing and executing the right action at the right time and that that you'll notice as i say that doesn't use the word thoughts or feelings at all because again getting back to that acceptance commitment stuff it's i've already kind of paraphrased the player earlier but i use this a lot the game doesn't give a shit how you feel and so thinking and acting and talking about how you feel unless you're really good at producing a certain state that is useful for the given activity you're trying to do, you're spending a lot of time and energy and attention on something that will probably get to that right spot anyway if your attention and actions are focused on the right thing. So most of my work with a performer will be, well, what do you want to focus on? When you're good, what do you normally do? And then how about we just commit a plan to do that? And then we review it. How did you go with that plan? I was pretty good, but in the third at bat, an umpire squeezed my strike zone, and I lost my shit. Okay, is an umpire going to squeeze his strike zone again? Probably. So, what are you going to do next time that happens? And we build a plan for everything that would knock them off their, you know, their key focus areas, so that eventually, and usually, if you're having a repeat, you know, decent time with an athlete or a performer, this might happen over the course of maybe four weeks, six weeks. Is they get to a point where there's nothing that can get their attention off what it should be on in the moment and there's nothing that can make them change the actions that they know give them the best chance of success in that moment.
1: So this sounds like there's a little bit of of mental rehearsal or role-playing almost, you know, maybe not explicit role-playing where you stand up and go, but actually walking them through mentally through that moment back in, in, the, in the moment when they were performing or when things weren't going right, picking it apart, analysing it, and then maybe going back and reconstructing it and then continuing to do that over that period of four weeks and trying to make it normal? So there's, is that the kind of psych- psychology behind it?
2: Yeah, I think so. There's part. There are some really good immersive exercises that I think are more, I use them more as part of that pre or post stuff to really get people stripped away from their ego. But in these, as you said, they're breaking down their performance To start with, I'll usually say, like, think of the best game you ever had, the best month you ever had, like, best presentation you've ever given, best engagement you've had as an operator. Like, usually there's not just one event. Some people might go to one. But if you ask the question, when you're really good, what are you paying attention to and what do you do? People can be like, oh, in my best games, you know, the common answer will be I don't think anything. And that's not technically true because if you're paying attention to something, there is there is mental processing going on. You just don't remember thinking of anything because memories are encoded by emotion. And if, you don't, if you're just totally in the moment and you're not feeling nervous about it or you're not feeling overcome, you're just doing, then you don't remember what you're thinking because it just goes in one ear and out the other and then you're on to the next action or attention point. And so when we start to dig into that, they're like, oh, yeah, well, I'm actually paying attention to the release point of the ball or to the, to the outside lineman's left foot. And that's the thing that allows me to know whether I go left or I go right. And once you clear it up for them, they're like, okay, so we should focus on this, that and that and do this and that. And if you do those most plays, you're going to give yourself a chance. Yeah. All right, let's see how we go with that. And then that's more of a generic review of when I'm good and then we go and expose that plan to the fire. And it's never going to be 100%, but we come back and we – without judgment or making them feel bad if they miss something, say with curiosity, oh, okay, so like the example I gave before, the umpire strike zone came up. Well, is that going to happen again? Yeah, probably. Do you need to build a plan to avoid it from knocking you off again? Yeah, probably. So then we go through each competitive action or each immersion event and deconstruct what just happened, and tweak the plan a little bit and then commit to doing it again and rinse and repeat over time within, like I said, four to six weeks, most people have got a pretty rock-solid non-negotiable plan that really sets them up to it often will lift their floor performances so they won't have the really shit games. And when they stay there often enough, then their ceiling starts to lift.
1: So there's there's a fair bit of kind of reflection going on here. The athletes that you've worked or the teams that you've worked in The cultures and organisations, and is there support across the broader organisation for psychologists to apply their craft, is or is it an opt-in for each individual athlete? Yeah, I would say it's much more the second, and it's
2: far from optimal at most. There are some really good ones. The Red Sox was a great organisation; it's probably the best example I've seen in pro sports of something that's really embedded and accepted. All of the coaches treat the Mental coach is just one of the staff and the players are pretty open to it. And if guys want to go in and do a meditation session or want to sit one-on-one in the dugout, it just happens and no one makes fun of it. In other teams I've been in, it's a little more challenging. And I think I would like that to be different. I would like it to be more standardized, but I probably wouldn't have got my shot if it wasn't like that because I wasn't a licensed psychologist when I started at the Philadelphia Eagles. They just knew I'd played professionally. And I was finishing my master's of psych and I was a coach. So they brought me in to coach that specific area. And I think that's a a blurry line, which to, to some degree, I I watched, there's a great YouTube channel called Cinema Therapy. And it's actually a, a therapist watching movies, famous movies with his, his buddy, who's a screenwriter or a director. And in that, process they analyze what's going on from both a psychological point of view and a filmmaking point of view and i just watched one recently where they described uh goodwill hunting and robin williams character in that movie as like and the therapy and the acting is great it's amazing but they were talking about that one of the most one of the strongest predictors of whether therapy works and this does apply to coaching just as much is the relationship you can be the smartest psychologist in the room it doesn't mean shit if the athlete isn't going to connect with you and trust you And so there's a balancing act there of can you have the skill set as a coach and a practitioner, but also can you morph and blend into the locker room so they don't feel like they're talking to some weird dude. In some instances, I actually want the person to get out of the locker room and go see a specialist. So they're very clearly, you know, cut off from the locker room macho bullshit sometimes, and they can go and deal with an actual anxiety disorder or an actual depressive episode or an actual maybe they're having some marital problems that's not what I specialize in but most of the time their ability to connect with whoever's going to provide that service is half of the answer of is this going to work on them yeah
1: Yeah, definitely and and that's something I've found doesn't matter what realm you're in and you know I I like here in Australia a guy named Alistair Clarkson he's the probably the best uh Australian football league coach in the last Two decades, probably or more. Probably last fifty years, maybe. Whenever he talks, he's a knockabout bloke. He loses his shit here and there, and he's you know he's he's pretty rough and ready to go. And he was a terrier of as a football player, but it's all he talks about is just talking about uh, building the relationships with the blokes. And there's there's art behind all of this building empathy, understanding people, having an approach. You know, there's a lot of good coaching methodologies that I would encourage budding leaders to go and explore. You know, just just Socratic questioning and understanding why that's important and why open ended questions are important, and the ability to listen. Coaches and you you would know this better than me, mate. Coaches have their own stresses sometimes. sometimes worried that they're not getting bought into feeling like imposters you know sitting in front of a an mvp or a or a or a future hall of famer at times must you must be going shit am i up to this so you're going to go in your own stress and you forget the fundamentals of good communication and good listening and and good question asking so i think there's these mental skills are uh, really important, and as I said, there's a there's a real uh, laundry list of, of of mental skills and tools, and 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 some of those are born directly out of pure psychology, cognitive behavioural therapy. I mentioned reframing before, and reflection, and and the list goes on. Goal setting and compartmentalisation, and but there's these other more nuanced tools. You know, the, the use of humour. The use of environment, you know, being smart enough to pick up that the new players might feel a bit intimidated in the in the locker room. But if you take them out to the bloody car park and put them in front of a Mustang car that you found out that they liked, you might you're just and I think the coaches, the good coaches kind of get those. They're they're all legitimate mental cognitive type of tools. Do you have any favourites, or any that you've found that you kind of come back to again and again, or, or and you know, or methodologies? I know it's a fluffy, kind of slippery area, mate. But
2: yeah, I think uh, humour is definitely part of one of my, I would say, accidental skills. Initially, I like you're a pretty funny guy. I'm funny looking. I know that much. <laughs> but the The ability, and also just having an Australian accent in America, made me automatically funny at times. Not novelty. Yeah. But there's an element of that that I didn't realise I naturally, like partly probably because I'd been an athlete in a locker room and when things got tense, you might throw a joke around or whatever. I realised as I got better as a player, stopped relying on superstition so much. Part of it was just like making a joke and realising like this is just a fucking game. Like why why is everyone so stressed? My ability to do that, I I started noticing it happened and more because I got feedback from a couple of colleagues who said, you know, these two things are your strength. One is your yeah, empathy right. and the other is your humour. Yep. And I was like, oh, I, I'm not, like this isn't, I take it seriously when I'm working with someone and they're like, are you are kidding me? You make jokes all the time and it's actually really good. So I then probably became a little more aware and I wouldn't say deliberate, like not trying to crack a joke, but being more flexible that, all right, if there's a joke to be made, then I'll, I'll do it. Be, be the one, And yeah. uh, there's some good research around the use of humour, particularly in leadership contexts, but within therapy as well that you know we we're talking about the trust between or the relationship between the therapist and the client or the coach and the athlete or performer is governed in a lot by how much trust there is and humor is a big builder of trust if it's done appropriately obviously inappropriate humor not okay and, and so I think that that is a, a part of my toolkit I guess the other one that I think is a little more, I would say woo-woo if I'm if I'm putting on my athlete or operator hat. And someone did this to me when I was 19. Actually, at 19, I would have been drinking the Kool-Aid, so I would have gone with it. When I was 25 and a bit more jaded, I would have been like, what the fuck is this? This is bullshit. <laughs> but having since seen it done in a in front of a psychology class and then on a whim trying it with an athlete, and it was incredibly powerful is an exercise. But I now call, and this is totally not my exercise, so please don't think I'm taking credit for this. But the problem is I can't credit where I got it from because I don't know who invented the exercise. It's what I call 15 and 50. And when someone's stuck in their, you know, woe is me shoes, like, oh, COVID's a bitch and I have to do this testing and it shouldn't be like this and I wish I could just go back to normal. And they're they're, they're contemplating all the reasons why things shouldn't be the way they are or why I shouldn't have to do this or why it's, you know, I'm a failure and I can maybe I can't get... Basically, their their attention is on things that either aren't helpful or real, but what are you going to do about it? And the activity goes, like, you get someone seated, you put a chair on one side of them and a chair on the other side, or if we're in a hotel room, which happens sometimes, or we're in a locker room, you just say, like, just imagine a space over there where someone can sit and I'm pointing to the edge of the bed in my hotel room here or back there, the other chair. You know, like... And, and you get him into a meditative state. And then you're like, just picture your 15-year-old self has just sat down on the edge of the bed. Like, look at that person. Remember who you are as 15. Like, you see them, little punk, thinks he's so cool, a little bit more nervous than he lets on. And you, and you really get into re- reconnecting with that 15-year-old. And then the 15-year-old looks up and he looks dead at you. And And look at the way the 15-year-old looks at you. Like he, he regards you with either pride because you're doing the thing that he always dreamed of, which is often the case with some of the performers I, I'm talking with, or he's regarding you with curiosity of like, how the fuck did you end up there? I never thought of doing this. It helps you reconnect with what is what are some of your core values, what was really important to you as a kid before the world washed you over a little bit. And then specifically with whatever they're struggling with, COVID, I shouldn't have to coach this punk athlete who's a millionaire and won't listen to me, like all the things that people complain about, if he knew you were facing that challenge, what would 15-year-old do about it? What would 15-year-old you do? And it usually is a fairly clarifying question of like, oh, he'd either just jump right in because he's so glad to have the opportunity and he wouldn't complain about it. There you go. Or he'd walk away because he can't be bothered with it. And, you know, there are two choices in most situations, hop in or get out. And then likewise for the 15 and 50, you'd turn the other chair and you have 50-year-old you. Or if I'm working with someone who's 50, then it's 60-year-old you. But projecting into the future of like the guy who's done and dusted, he's had enough, or well, the girl who's done and dusted, had enough, retired, been through everything that you don't even know is coming yet. But They also know what you're going through right now. Like they actually lived it. But now they're not in the fire anymore and they're not feeling the emotions you're feeling, but they're really clear on what's important in life. What is it for you? Like what, what's their advice for you as they look at you, the young punk who's so caught up in the day that like in 20 years, no one's going to care about what you feel today. So what would 50-year-old tell you? It's an immersive activity. Yeah, I love it. That helps values clarification and usually commitment to like, well, here's what I'm going to do. And I'm not going to sit here and keep complaining about shit. I'm either going to act to get it out of my life, I'm going to accept it and move on, or I'm going to do
1: something about it. Are values important to to start that kind of cognitive development, cognitive control journey? I think they're
2: vital in everything. They're embedded in everything that we do, probably not at the top of mind level, but particularly when someone's struggling with like, usually when someone's stuck in one of those situations where they either can't decide what to do or they know what they should do and they're not doing it or they're complaining about something that has nothing to do with whether they're doing the right thing or not. Like, you know, the teammate who bitches about the other teammate that's not doing whatever, but then you look at their locker and and they're not that tidy themselves. When people are, are stuck with their attention not on what's important, it's because they've forgotten what's important. And that applies to me just as much as it applies to you as it applies to everyone. This is a human issue. We get distracted by shiny things or scary things and they take, it, they take us away from sometimes the boring things or the things that, you know, you kind of just take for granted. And then until it's too late or until you've gone so far down a path that you can't even remember what was important anymore. And so being able to be consistently connected to that is key because it allows, if I strip this back to not getting so deep into life values, which that exercise was about, but if you think about it in the context of a basketball game, what's valuable? a point. What's more valuable? Two points. What's more? Three points. And so our ability to act in line with that value system means that like, when I feel scared about going up and defending this guy, Steph Curry's going to shoot from wherever he's going to shoot from, I have to accept that he might burn me and score two points. But two points is better than three points against. So I have to accept my fear and still act in a valued way. And our ability to understand within the context that we're operating, whether it's on a basketball court, in a battlefield, in a boardroom, it's our ability to know what's valuable here and what can I do to move us a little closer to that. And that's with yourself in your life or with your teammates. For those who aren't familiar, because I wasn't until I kind of stumbled into it accidentally, was led into it by some elite performers who pointed to my cognitive behavioural therapy stuff and said, that's bullshit. It doesn't apply to us. There's a field that it's not only this guy, but this guy has done a bunch of work to kind of set up the acceptance commitment therapy model. His name's Stephen Hayes, had him on the podcast actually. Great, great guy and and super open. And really a great example of what you mentioned at the start, Harry, for both you and I have kind of lived it in a different way where you were an operator and now you've got your psych hat on occasionally i was a an athlete and now i've got my psych hat on occasionally Stephen came at it from a different angle he was a therapist but he he then developed a crippling anxiety disorder like out of the blue like out of nowhere so he was sunk into this pit and he couldn't work out why his therapy stuff did he couldn't therapy himself using what he gave to everyone else and eventually he started to reconsider the fact that it wasn't a bad thing that he had panic episodes. Clearly, it was not functional for his life. But that instead of trying to avoid everything that gave him panic, he had to learn to accept it and try and at least come to terms with it, almost like acclimatization. And and he, and he developed this stuff initially. was used a lot in in treatment of phobias, in treatment of addiction, to be able to feel those feelings and still act the right way. Because once a panic disorder gets older, you, you can't change that. You can't think your way down can't breathe your way out once the you're trying to quit smoking and that urge grabs you like you that isn't going away until you either smoke again or you go to sleep and usually the second one's pretty hard and so the ability to actually deal with the presence of an emotion and still act the right way is really what he started to develop and he has six key psychological processes which i use pretty regularly now and particularly when, when it comes to like baseline education stuff because they're ironically or you know happily lined up pretty well with the physical six types of physical fitness where you can think of if you go to a gym, you can work on your strength, get on the bench press, you can work on your speed, sprinting drills, you can work on your agility, you can work on your flexibility, you can work on your stability. These things all apply to our psychological mm. skill set as well. You yeah, can love- have psychological flexibility. I can have mental strength. I can have emotional endurance. And these things are are actually trainable, particularly in two senses. One, my ability to be aware of what's required in the moment. Sometimes I need to hang on. Sometimes I need to give up. And part of that is recognising are my emotions telling me, is this good data or is this noise? And then the second part is when I need to make that commitment, when I need to change direction, is being flexible and adaptable enough to do the right thing, as I said before. Paying attention to the right thing and taking the right action at the right time, which is so context-dependent, obviously.
1: Yeah, I love it. I love the, the 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 physical analogy. For me, I was surprised that the basics still resonate with people, and a lot of people haven't haven't really ventured into this. And I think that you know I've already used a couple of physiological analogies for the cycle, but I think it's they're not true in a scientific sense. There's, there's kind of, you know, people could argue the, the difference between, you know, the mind and the, and the body, and, and, and that's the, the great question of all, isn't it? But I think when you're talking to athletes, and I find the same talking to operators and frontline first responders, they're very physical jobs. So that people ex- experience the world. Their perception and their experience of the world really is through their physical selves. You know, you think of a paramedic or a, or an emergency medical stuff. They even what they smell is really important. Is critical. A soldier, what you smell can be the difference. But you know, you're in the jungle, you, and you can only see two or ten meters. Smell becomes your optimal, your number one. Um, so, in those contexts, we're really physically minded, and 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 that goes for hearing. So, I love to hear you you draw that analogy. Of the you know the six physiological ways to train and overlaying them, And I think it makes it very accessible. And we'll have those notes. We'll cover that; those notes, a summary of those in 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 the show notes when we when we uh, when we finish. But how how important psychological education for for athletes? Do you, is there any literacy of note in these young men and women that you train with, and do you think it's it's worth the the effort to? have you know psychoeducation sessions and 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 whatnot
2: vital like i think even more important than having a psychologist in some senses in the environment because with the nature of i mean let's just say how much a psychologist might cost if you drag them around everywhere you went they're not they're not cheap on the team budget right and particularly at lower level colleges high school teams they're not going to have a psychologist with them all the time so if you can actually have psychological education there's a couple of things that happen one it normalizes talking about this stuff that you can't see and like you said it actually gives a language or you know some labels to these things and that they're probably a couple of the key outcomes of either good psychological therapy or even just good coaching is for us to be able to put a label on what we feel So that then I know if this thing comes up, this thing that I label nerves or I might label it butterfly, whatever you label it, when I get butterflies, this happens to me. So instead, when next time I get butterflies, I'm going to do X. And our ability to just have a language that we use for that not only makes it easier for us to be aware of what's happening and to respond, but it actually allows us to help each other. And so the education piece, when there's small groups, not large groups, small groups of what would effectively be a community of practice inside a a sports team or a performing team in a surgical theatre on a stage, wherever it might be, where we're all kind of doing the same job, just different versions of it, but we're dealing with the same complex problem, is when we can talk not only about the battlefield outside but about our internal battlefield and about the terrain we're trying to traverse and your map is different to mine, Yep. it helps to actually be able to share that. And because sometimes I can see you getting into a trap before you can, and vice versa. Yeah, and I love so. that. That
1: goes to to peer support as well. I, I see psychoeducation as a mental tool. You know, it's, it's pretty obvious when I say it out loud, but we don't often appreciate it. And you talked before about pre-event. In event and post event kind of approach. I love that. That's a key takeaway for me professionally. And I hadn't really kind of got that uh, fixed in my mind. The psychoeducation piece, I've always looked at a young sports person and gone, they were doing this before they even knew what they were doing. All they knew that it felt good that it was fun, and for a lot of them it still is. You see that in in elite sports people, you see that in operators, in frontline responders that just love the work, love the the competence and confidence that it gives them, et cetera. But it's, it's years down the track before they really understand how they're doing it or why they're doing it, when they want to move their hand, how do they, you know, and how they feel. And so it seems to me not only is it... Good for for teams and groups to understand cognitive and physiology as well I and mean, we we know as i said before we know so much more about that now you kind of learn that through osmosis a lot of the, along the way it's definitely a one or two or five percent at a, at addition to to performance i think and i and i think cumulatively with all of these things psychoeducation and learning cognitive tools i think that's uh we, we haven't really started to untap that or unleash it yet and i, I every psychologist. Just made have got here in um, and coach here in, in Melbourne, the the sports capital of the world, so called. Still quite frustrated with uh, not being able to kind of unleash and uh, and with the emerging research. Mate, we're kind of rounding the boy here, and uh, I can sense uh, our first beer together is going to be probably <laughs> a few more than than one or two because there's a lot to talk about. What What are some of the common cognitive traps or cognitive issues that you or mental issues that you find in elite performers as you've gone through the last decade or so? I note one in the in the sports illustrated article you talk about going out while the batter is practicing and talking through all of the possible negative thoughts that he may be having whilst he's batting. You know, the coach is watching in the stand, the, the umpires against you, and blah, blah, blah. You know, actually verbalizing that and taunting him almost, you know, uh while he's batting. Just talk talk us through that one. That's intriguing. It kind of was a version of an on-field version
2: of the 1550 where it's there is a voice that we all have the talking voice in our head which is not very useful while we're trying to do stuff often we're not talking to ourselves when we're doing good shit and particularly if a player is talking about you know they're trying to talk themselves trying to use positive talk that's probably what i would call a trap often is thinking that we can talk ourselves into good shit and using positive words and you know if they're action cues cool but if they're like dominate and feel good and like overpower that's fine like they work until they don't yeah right like i can say i'm feeling good i'm feeling positive but we also have the other voice in our head that calls bullshit and and most of us have a pretty good one where i go i might try and tell myself i'm on top of things but if i truly feel overwhelmed or if i'm finally facing that opponent who's actually as good as me or maybe even better then holy shit the little voice in our head when I'm saying, I've got this guy, I've got this guy. No, you don't.
1: Just that little voice in the back. Yeah, it's a bit like that, you've got this term. Now, I don't want to make light of it because it means it's contextual and it means a lot in some context for some people, but one of the worst things you could do is, is convince yourself you've got it when you just haven't and you need to come to that acceptance as you've indicated, that's the first step. And so it can put you it, it kind of flows into um superstitions as well, becoming maladaptive. You're trapped in them, you know, you can't get yeah. out.
2: Yeah, exactly. And so when when that voice either takes over when he's not supposed to and he's and and you actually might be in a good place, but the the voice, whether it's a he or her, could even be your dad or your auntie, or your old school teacher. A cricket someone commentator.
1: Who,
2: yeah, there you go. It could be anyone that, you've, that you're really wanting to impress. And that's that's often where it comes from is like, if I don't get this done, I'm going to be a disappointment to this person who I just want to be loved by. And often we won't hear that voice, the exact voice, the intonation, the accent, whatever. But our desire to execute things perfectly is usually because there's way down the line there's something underneath it but we don't need to get to that i always say to people i'm working with we don't have to this isn't going to be therapy on a couch and tell me about your childhood if you want to understand why yeah we can spend a lot of time on it and cool we'll find out why it doesn't necessarily shift the needle too much unless there's some seriously maladaptive shit going on at which point i'm going to hand you to someone else anyway but if we're talking about the voice in your head it's usually trying to use that almost like the example I gave earlier of the, the umpire shrinking a strike zone on a hitter is to learn okay well when this happens what am I going to do a lot of it is it comes down to having a plan on top of my plan here's what I normally do but if this thing happens I know that if I do x I give myself the best chance of getting through it so when the voice perks up this person who I'm doing that drill with As we've already had a discussion around when the voice says x I'm going to pay attention to why. I can hear the voice. It doesn't mean I have to engage with it. I can notice that it's the same as like I can listen to the voice in my head. I can listen to the coach who's chewing me out from the bench. I can listen to the Muppet in in row three if I want. Everyone's got opinions. Everyone's telling you you're shit or you're good or you should do X or Y, but you're the one who's doing the thing. And so our ability to block out the person in row three or our coach at times, or even the critic inside our our heads is really the key to being able to keep our attention, again, back to that definition, is my attention on the right things and am I doing the right actions at the right time? For the 30 seconds in between plays, I can listen to the guy in row three all I want, or I can look at the girl in row five and my mind can go anywhere, but when it needs to be where it needs to be, can I get it there? And that's what that activity is about is like when and occasionally I would use humour in that. So there is some like, you shit, don't throw this ball the wrong way. But there's also like, gee, I'm feeling sexy today. God, I must look good in this uniform. <laughs> and and again, it's funny, but your job as a performer there is to like, even if it's funny and even if it does make you feel good, you can't concentrate on how you feel or how you look. You have to do your thing. And so that's a an immersion practice, I guess.
1: Yeah, I love it. It's a little bit of inoculation, isn't it? You know, it might be something that's used. You could pick the bones out of in phobia training. I forget the, the technical term for it, but that that kind of approach. Exposure therapy? Exposure therapy, that's the one, yeah. I, I, you could pick the bones out of that. It sounds kind of a little the same, particularly when you're standing behind the dugout there and or the, the bat increase and, and uh, hurling abuse. <laughs> I know, again, coming back to Alistair Clarkson, he used to get uh, match day noise and play it over some... Uh, the big speakers at training, and then run drills for the last five minutes with X amount of goals down and, and put pressure. And the, the players said that it actually it felt as close as it was ever going to feel. So so mm. it's um, it's a long way from running um, laps of the beach in 1950s. And I think uh, again, <laughs> this cognitive skills and mental skills will evolve, and it's uh, and hopefully be uh, accepted. The, the last part of this, mate, before we kind of get towards to get to the end. Something I'm really interested in at the moment is group reflective practices, something I don't see a great deal of. I, I, I see it, I've i seen it in the football and, and elite sports who seem to analyse and review out the yin-yang almost, almost too much at times because you can see players actually switching off, but I don't see it enough in, in other realms of, of life, particularly in corporates and broader industry. There's it, it just doesn't exist. And so trying to bring in reflective practices around team building and empathy building and trust building, because every business owner or every enterprise owner wants trust and accountability. Well, in my mind, the only way to do that is to kind of get together and share stories and share experience and get to know have you used group reflective practices is it something that you have done much of or or what's your experience in it and what do you think is their value in it
2: yeah it actually is where probably i my journey started as a coach i mentioned i did leadership consulting you know, I just did air quotes for people who can't see the screen, uh, whatever the fuck that means, because basically it was, it was all psychology, but being done right, at that stage, I wasn't qualified. So it was amazing. I ended up working with the New Zealand cricket team, the uh, most of New Zealand rugby, the Olympic soccer team in New Zealand. And so I've been incredibly lucky to get exposure at these things when arguably it If I was in charge, I might not be hiring someone with that skill set, but there I was. Anyway, part of that practice was the reason I got into it is because I was, during my time as an athlete, I was lucky enough to be at a team that had a shit culture. And by that, I mean I was lucky to be there as it actually shifted a little bit, even for two years. Went from not being in the finals for, might have been 20 or 30 years, to making the finals for the first time. And I was part of, as as an operator, as an athlete, a program run by a group called Leading Teams, which there are some critics of, and I, I would I would take some of what they do now. I don't use all of it, but it's basically it's grown up from Air Force leadership training where it was very much a, a model of, you know, those with the most invested are the last surre- last to surrender is one of the sayings they use regularly, and it's giving the operator or the person who's at the coalface responsibility, accountability, and ownership for what goes on. So that when the plan starts to go a little, a little awry, they're not just standing there saying, oh, bloody hell, coach blew this one. It's their plan and they, they make the adjustments on the fly. And if their teammates aren't pulling their weight, they pull the teammates up instead of hoping the coach will do it. And so it's a decentralised leadership model, I guess, to some degree. And part of that is doing small group work within the playing group, which I was facilitating those elite, you know, the, the international cricket team, international rugby players, olympic soccer team when i was 26 27 doing small group work in that area so that's where i started and to this day it's still particularly with macho males it's still the the best quality discourse you'll get unless there's a very open individual who's ready to do the work you will need three or four males in the room preferably not facing each other so that they can talk in you know with vulnerability and with honesty about What they really think and what they really feel, and with an acceptance of, like, I'm part of the problem. And that includes for their own performance, but talking about team performance as well. Yeah. Yeah like, Can uh, I yeah, like, I answer your question? I feel like I ramble. Well,
1: look, it's it's the question will be open ended for quite a while yet, mate, because there's still a lot of resistance, and each team and each individual needs to make their own their own journey. And really, for for guys like you and me, and and all the psychologists out there, there's still so much learning to be done because each person presents in a different way. And there, as I said, there's a laundry list of of tools that are available. One thing I would say, a reflection I have off the back of it that is that one, one bit of success that we had back in the day in the military was putting the psychologists down into the training environments and you you talked about being out there on the field with the batters and the pitchers in the in baseball and allowing relationships to to prosper and to have a joke and to get to know, share the lexicon and the language, you know, there's a whole different language down in the change rooms that that people don't get. And it's and it's local too. It can be around a song, or it can be around, you know, you know, when you're a young dickhead and you 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 watch a movie and then your, your mates just talk to each other through the movie lines for the next six months, you mm-hmm. know, and, and only mm-hmm. you know what you're talking about. There's this kind of – so that th- you need to get to that level and I think the good coaches pick up on those types of things and, and – I think there's actually like
2: you, – you mentioned there the good coaches. I think whoever's in charge of the environment, in a lot of cases in sport it's the head coach, but whether it's the GM, the director of performance, which I'm lucky enough to fill that role now, the person who actually puts people into the environment – plays a huge role in allowing that to happen i know that at the basketball team i was at in the nba developed some great relationships in year one because i had that same experience as you when you're embedded and you're in the dugout or you're in the training environment you get you build better relationships they normalize you being around they become comfortable talking to you you get little windows of vulnerability where you can Start to pry the door open, so I would rebound. It's exponential. Players.
1: It's exponential. Yes, it?
2: I would rebound for the players while they're shooting free throws or on the side with throwing the balls in during drills, and it was a it really embedded me with particularly a couple of the key players. And then a new management came in the next year, and they were like, "No, no, no, we, you got to get out of there. We've got to get this guy in there." And it and it didn't affect the relationships I had already built. But with two or three players coming into the environment, it did change the way I was able to interact or the amount I was able to interact there. So I, I can't stress enough. It's not necessarily the psychologist's job to make psychology normal. They already clearly think it's normal because they're doing it as a job. Yep. Whoever's creating the environment needs to give them space and involve them and not have them be the weird dude in the corner office.
1: Yeah, 100%. And the same, you know, it's what happened with strength and conditioning coaches who up to this point in time really are the psychologists to a large extent. they right. listen to social problems, problems with mums, dads, girlfriends, bloody addictions, whatever. But I think down in that, down on the court, on the field at the at the gun line whatever that is where the psychologists they can start to have discussions about goal setting you know goal attainment reframing chunking and um, compartmentalizing and and psychoeducation discussions about rehearsal reflection the part that role play can can play and, and things like self-talk, you know, self talk's one of those things that I'm, I'm with you. It's kind of the pendulum swung way too far in terms of, you know, just say it and it will be true. And we know that that's, um, that can be such a, a cognitive trap. And the list goes on of all of the different tools that can be used. And then there's the art of applying those tools at the right time and the right place for the right people. And I think that's the real, real art. And it's a journey I know that both, we're both very passionate about. A couple of few questions to finish off, mate, and uh, so short, short answer type questions. Uh, you've just taken over a, a pretty massive role. You know, you oversee half a dozen or more 10-odd teams of Australian representative teams of, of um, soccer or footballers, men and men's and women's as a director of, of performance for Football Australia. What You must be doing massive days. You've been in isolation for months almost now, coming out of the US into Australia, changing states back into Vietnam. What... What are, the, what are a couple of tips that you use to keep yourself afloat and uh, moving forward, uh, a bit of self-care, advice on self-care for uh, for those people in coaching and senior roles? Well, I started with it earlier when I said making sure I exercise
2: every day unless I really need to sleep in, which is a little bit subjective but often related to like I only got four or five hours last night, so I'm, I'm not sure if I'll work out tomorrow morning, but mostly having it as an everyday thing eating predominantly not many carbs and and mostly fish salad and fruit, just trying to keep the high-energy foods going. And if either of those are not your cup of tea, then meditation has been a pretty consistent part of my life now, my practice, for a good couple of years. And then finally, just one problem at a time because there's plenty of spot fires that are coming up. Right now, if I turned around and showed you the list that I've scribbled out on the hotel notepad here, (laughs) there's almost two pages, and I don't have big writing, of things that have literally come up just while I've been in this hotel room, which is only four days. So there's always more than one problem to work on, but you can only do it properly one at a time, and being able to accept that, like, all right, one of them's going to have to wait, or in this case, 20 of them are going to have to wait, and just working through each problem as it, as it comes up. None of it's groundbreaking advice. No, it's good to than, hear. It's, it's worth repeating. Accepting, accepting that like for a little period, something, sometimes it'll be shit. There'll be a day where I'm like, oh, how good's this? But most of it, it's scrambling. And then as long as you continue to scramble, and a lot of my focus with this group in particular is about the word closer. I, heard, I used it earlier when I talked about the ideal practice or the ideal execution or performance is nothing's ever going to be perfect or ideal but our ability to move a little bit closer each time so we go out and we play china we beat them three nil it definitely wasn't the best game but we'll take three yeah. nil but how do we move a little closer not only to our better selves but potentially to each other in the group we had a little ritual when we got into this hotel which i won't share because it's an internal thing but part of bringing the group closer as we move. And all of it is about moving closer to the World Cup. And so our ability to just recognise that every every time, even if I think it was a shit day, which occasionally that happens, to be able to find somewhere where it's like, yeah, but we got closer. Yeah. Just by doing this thing, we got closer. Or just by talking with that person, me and that person got closer. Like yeah. I, we, in a discussion we had break, uh, debriefing the Olympics, particularly for our women's team who overachieved, best result ever, went to the bronze medal match against the US women's national team, who were the number one team in the world, and unfortunately lost in the bronze medal match and basically by one goal, and it could have gone either way, also could have gone to the gold medal round, again, lost by one goal. And talking afterwards, particularly with the coach, and he said, you know, I just don't want us to get comfortable because everyone's patting us on the back, that's the best ever result. But you know, and everyone's like, "Oh, it's a game of inches, and it could have gone another way." But really, what we're talking about here is, if it's a game of inches, let's stack the inches. Let's get a little bit closer each day. Let's let's even if we only move the needle a little bit. If you do that every day, every tournament, every practice, by the time the next game of inches comes, we've got 20 of them in the pocket. And so, if we lose a couple of inches, we're miles ahead of everyone else. Rant over. I, Great. I, I get a little excited talking about that.
1: Not at all, mate. And, and it points to a whole other area of kind of group psychology and group mentality and how how you can tap into the creating a common foe or a common enemy or, or whatever you need to do to kind of galvanise everyone together. Mate, we've covered a lot of breadth. We've got a lot of topics tonight, but we always ask, we always finish by asking our guests if they were parachuted into a team on Monday and uh, they uh, they could change one thing immediately in that team to improve their performance, notwithstanding that uh, you can't assess the team, what can the teams in the in the mission critical team Institute community do on Monday to perform better in terms of their cognitive performance, their mental performance? I think like actually I've just done it. that's here's the easy answer. I was
2: parachuted into football Australia a week before the Olympics started. And so here's my answer. I would go around and connect with as many people as I could who were the operators in the environment. They know it better than I potentially will ever know it because they've spent a lifetime in soccer, football, depending on what country you're in. They've played at the highest levels. I don't know shit about football compared to them, But I do know about teams working together and about humans performing at their best. And so my two questions are this. When you're really good, what are you doing? Why don't we do that? Why don't we just make that the focus instead of trying to like get better at shit that you're not good at. And number two, I I view my role in teams is how can I help you do your job better? And so often in some instances, it'll be what's getting in the way of you doing your job better. When you're really good, what do you do? And currently what's getting in the way of that? Some people will often start pointing the external, like, Oh, we need more money. And that guy doesn't let me do what I want him to. And she keeps talking behind my back. But eventually if we, have that conversation often enough, we start to go, oh, but what about what's inside you that's stopping you from doing that stuff? Because we can point to everyone else and once we do deal with some of that stuff, shit, we're still not performing well. There must be something else going on. So there's there's my uh, semi-confident answer. I would ask those two questions. When you're good,
1: what do you do? And what's getting in the way of that right now? Yeah, we well, are in good company, mate, because I think Thaler and Kahneman both talk about the obvious thing to do is to put more resources in front of people and get more assistance to people to get better when the cheap and nasty version is, is more effective, and that is take remove the blockers. Remove the things that stop people moving forward, and they're everywhere once you start looking for them. I think it's really good, good advice to finish on, mate. It's been great to reconnect, Patty, and uh, good to have you on the team cast. So uh, I wish you all the best, mate, and uh, again, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Harry,
2: and and let me just say thank you to the Mission Critical community because that's uh, been a large part of what's changed my practice and made me better. I know that when Preston first invited me, I've said this when I had Preston on as a guest on my podcast, but when Preston first invited me, I was kind of like, okay, mate, like, Preston doesn't strike me as someone who's going to really command a room of athletes. But then he mentioned that, Oh yeah, you know, we've got the FBI and NASA and the Navy SEALs and all these, I'm like, Oh, yeah, I'd love to go to that room. Cool. <laughs> and then once I was in there, it was kind of blew my mind that I was in the room with these people and that I like, I was just learning so much. It was such a refreshing change from a lot of the traditional sports conferences and it's because a lot of the stuff we just talked about today, like people dealing with real shit and no room for feel-good stuff often. And it's and it's made me a hundred percent better at what I do. And more importantly, it's for people who do really important jobs, not just, you know, millionaire athletes or like I happen to do a cool job when I get to sit back and take a breath. It's not a bad job from the outside. But it's nowhere near as important as a lot of the people in the mission critical community. So I just want to say thanks for having me. Thanks for teaching me, and thanks for doing what you do.
1: Yep, no worries at all, mate. Those million-dollar athletes are providing us great insights and information into human performance, so we, uh, we're all on that journey together. But hopefully we'll catch up and have a beer in person soon, mate. More than one.
0: Thank you again for listening to our Teamcast. For more information about the Mission Critical Team Institute, please go to www.missioncti.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Instagram. If you are a mission critical team that wants more information on our courses, please reach out to our director of operations, Janice Jackson, at Janice at missioncti.com. That's J-A-N-E-S-E at missioncti.com. And once again, thank you, Janice, and thank you to Shelby Row Productions for helping us produce the Teamcast. Have a great day.